Welcome to the podcast of ideas. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll be releasing audio from the Battle of Ideas Festival, which took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. The debate you're about to hear is called Woke Corporations, Responsible Capitalism or Virtue Signaling. Patrick Hayes is in the chair and we'd like to say a special thanks to Diageo who partnered with us to produce this debate. Okay everyone, I think we're going to make a start. Um, firstly, a big thank you to any rugby fans in the audience. Uh, 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 <laughs> if you've decided to come out for this session rather than watch the, 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 the final, you have my utmost respect. Uh, and a big thank you to Dan who I know <laughs> will be monitoring the results during the, the panel. Um, so, uh, welcome to this first Battle of Ideas session on, uh, in the ideology in the 21st century strands on woke corporations, responsible capitalism, or virtue signalling. For many companies, it no longer seems to be enough to just develop good products and services that people want. They have to also demonstrate their responsible, woke nature. And we're seeing a lot of examples of that in the media at the moment, ranging from Gillette uh, taking on toxic masculinity in, in its adverts, or Pepsi-Cola releasing an advert with Kylie Jenner healing divisions at a protest match. But it's not just advertising messages. Whole companies are now starting to structure themselves around trying to do social goods. It's very common in the sector that I work in for founders to talk about themselves as running social enterprises rather than businesses. A lot of company time uh, ac across the board is now spent running courses on things like gender awareness and mental health issues that aren't necessarily related to the core function of a business. So what I'm keen to do in the next hour and a half is to really explore, you know, is this a genuine shift in how businesses think about their roles? Or is it what other people might call wokewashing, which is basically just appropriating the language of social causes to make profit and pander to millennials? Or regardless of their sincerity and motivations, is this actually something that companies should be doing at all? So without further ado from me, we've got a fantastic panel that are going to kick off the session. I'm very keen to make this as conversational as possible and to get as many points and questions in from the audience. Um, but I'm going to introduce um, all of our speakers now uh, and uh, in the order that they're going to speak. So we're going to start off to my right with Toby Young, who many of you will be familiar with from previous Battle of Ideas uh, events, but he's the co-founder of the West London Free School, uh, the, the book How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, and he's also the associate editor of The Spectator in Kiet. We also have Dan Mobley, who's the Corporate Relations Director at Diageo. Dr. Eliane Glazer, who's, uh, who's a writer, a radio producer, a reader um, at Vaspar University, uh, and uh, I believe um, uh, is also the author of Anti-Politics on the Demonization of Ideology, Authority and the State. To my immediate left, we have Asad Duna, the founder of The Unmistakables and a commentator, but also the former Direction of Communications for Pride in London as well. And then last but very much not least, we have Dr. Norman Lewis, who's the director of Futures Diagnosis Limited and is also the co-author of Big Potatoes, the London Manifesto for Innovation. So without further ado from me, I'm going to now hand over to Toby to give his opening remarks and then we'll work our way down the panel here. Toby, over to you. So I wanted to rephrase the question slightly. Um, the question I'm interested in is, um, uh, are we talking about the cynical hijacking of the social justice movement by evil corporations to neuter the threat posed by this new incarnation of the left? Or 
is performative wokeness proof that Joseph Schumpeter was right when he predicted that capitalism would eventually eat itself? <laughs> um, I think the case for um, uh, it being the cynical hijacking of the left by evil corporations for cynical, self-interested reasons is obviously quite, quite powerful. Um, uh, you can see why the corporate sector would embrace the definition of equality being invoked by advocates of equality, diversity and inclusion in preference to a more old-fashioned socialist definition of equality. And what I'm thinking of is that the, in the old socialist sense, equality meant socio-economic equality between individuals. But in the new identitarian sense, it means equality between different groups rather than individuals, so between whites and blacks, men and women, straights and gays, cis, non-cis, etc. And achieving the latter form of equality is obviously completely compatible um, with uh, corporate capitalism, uh, whereas achieving the former old-fashioned sense of equality uh, isn't. Uh, that really requires the end of capitalism, or at least a heavily regulated, neutered form of capitalism. The latter, complying with the diktats of the advocates of equality, diversity and inclusion, just really means um, employing some women and minorities in senior management positions on, on boards and so forth, quite easy to do without dismantling the kind of corporate hierarchy. You know, provided multinational giants like Procter & Gamble have sufficient numbers of women and minorities in senior positions and at board level, and provided they regurgitate woke orthodoxies from time to time, like Gillette's toxic masculinity ad, the new generation of progressive activists don't really seem to care much about the gap between the highest and lowest paid employees. That's not relevant. The relevant thing is that groups should be proportionally represented, particularly at the upper end of uh, the corporation. Um, and it's just as well um, that people are focusing much less on the gap between the highest and lowest paid increasing dramatically over the past 20 years. Um, in a book called um, The Meritocracy Trap, published earlier this year by a um, Yale law professor called David Markovitz. Um, he talks about the uh, growth of the equ equality, diversity and inclusion movement as a kind of doubling down on meritocracy. It's a way for corporations like Diageo to uh, 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 demonstrate how meritocratic they are. They're doing things to overcome the advantages that cis, het, privileged white males have, but for meritocratic reasons. It's a way of uh, trying to legitimise inequality. Um, uh, meritocracy, you know, in my father's original analysis in The Rise of the Meritocracy, he, he didn't like meritocracy as an old-fashioned egalitarian socialist because he saw meritocracy as legitimising socio-economic inequality. And you can see it doing the same thing um, uh, in the guise of promoting diversity, equity and inclusion. It's a way of trying to shore up meritocracy's kind of claim to fairness. Um, so that, that struck me as reasonably plausible. Um, uh, in the New York Times recently, Russ Duthat, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, he, he came up, he, his theory is that uh, the reason 
companies engage in performative wokeness is a kind of uh, form of tribute that the kind of corporate pangendrums pay to uh, liberal activists as a way of trying to uh, preemptively uh, take their side in the culture war in the hope that uh, in the event of Elizabeth Warren or in this country Jeremy Corbyn getting elected, they'll do less uh, to tax or regulate these monopolies because they're already on their side, as it were, in the culture war. And Duthat also made this kind of uh, cynical point, which is that one of the effects of uh, churning out uh, kind of this woke propaganda, things like the toxic masculinity ad that Gillette produced, um, is that it alienates the white working class um, uh, and, and, and drives them into the arms of um, far-right demagogues like um, Donald Trump. So in a way, by embracing this agenda, uh, uh, by siding with the kind of um, uh, morally superior, educated, cultural elite in the culture war, the corporate sector is making it more likely that Trump and Viktor Orban and others will be elected and so less likely that they'll be taxed or regulated. So there's a kind of cynical, really cynical uh, thing going on there, according Two to Duthat. But I, I, think, I think, I haven't got any time for this, maybe we can get into it in the discussion, but I think actually support for the proposition that actually Schumpeter was right, and this is an example of capitalism eating itself, uh, is actually stronger. Um, and we can talk about that. So I, I, I was able to put the straw man. I don't actually think anything I said then is true. I think the opposite, but I don't have time to tell you what. Maybe later. There will be time later on, Toby. Thanks very much for your opening comments. Dan, over Th to you. Thank you very much, and thank you for the, the audience for, for joining us. It's a great test, as I was saying before, of the Venn diagram of libertarians and rugby fans and it seems that there's not that much overlap because we've got a fairly full auditorium and uh, and obviously a, a big rugby world cup final with england in it is extremely good for our guinness sales so uh, i hope you're <laughs> celebrating an england victory after this uh, this panel uh, but don't start too early said a diagio spokesman um so i'm also going to reframe the topic slightly because um, I'm one of the 14 people who run our company and I must have missed all the senior management meetings where we discussed how to use our performative wokeness to see off Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, maybe I was on, on holiday for those ones, but I don't remember those debates within the, uh, the company. What we do debate is um, you know, how to engage with social issues, big political issues of the day in a way that will allow our company to succeed and thrive. Um, and actually, I do think there's a bit of a straw man in this title, this idea that um, corporations can somehow, you know, as sort of neutral behemoths stand aside from big social and political issues and sort of rationally assess um, how to exploit them in different ways for, for, for profit or to see off threat. It, it doesn't really work that way. Corporations are ultimately just men and women who are trying to deliver services that people want to buy or products that people want to buy. Um, and in doing that, you are inevitably integrated in and interacting with the whole of society, um, and you just need to think through how to engage with these issues. Because if you don't, these issues will come and find you. Um, we don't really have a choice on many of the issues that I suspect we'll discuss today, whether or not to comment on them, whether or not to engage with them. Um, they are issues that our employees, the 30,000 people that work for Diageo around the world, most of whom are not in the UK, and many of whom don't know who Jeremy Corbyn is. Um, but, you know, they are interested in the issues that impact them and their families in the countries where they operate around the world, and we're in 180 different countries worldwide. Um, 
so, you know, you don't really have a choice on whether or not to engage in these issues. The question is how you engage with these different issues. Um, many of the examples, I think, have been touched on in the, the description of this session, and, and you touched on some of them, Patrick, and I think you mentioned some of the companies too. Um, you know, some of them are very crass, and some of them are exploitative of social issues, um, and they all backfire on the company and the brand that's trying to exploit those issues. The famous one of Kendall Jenner um, in a sort of civil rights protest at a time when... Oh, was it Kylie or Kendall? We've got a conflict now. Uh, it yeah. was Kendall, I think, Kendall. I think, if I know my woke washing. Um, you know, that backfired massively on, on Pepsi. I suspect somewhere in Pepsi there's a, a, an empty chair where a marketing director used to be as a result of that, that advert because they clearly got it so terribly wrong. And Diageo's not immune to making mistakes because we are, as I say, ultimately people who exercise judgment and we sometimes get it wrong. You know, I'd look at a brand like Bailey's, where for a long time, Bailey's, um, which is a brand that predominantly tends to appeal more to women than to men, um, and a lot of the marketing around Bailey's was around female empowerment. And actually, that didn't really seem to resonate with consumers, because actually, when we go and talk to people who were drinking Bailey's or thinking of drinking Bailey's, they don't really want to be lectured in that moment around female empowerment. They see it primarily as a kind of form of liquid cake uh, a sort of treat <laughs> and indulgence that they want to enjoy. Um, and so actually, if you look at the marketing around Baileys, it's not trying to be woke or progressive in any way. It's just encouraging people to occasionally indulge themselves in a, in a nice treat. But sometimes we will, through our marketing, speak to big social issues, and we will do it in ways that are credible. And this doesn't work unless it's authentic. You know, you need to have a right to play in that space. Your brand needs to have some resonance with the issue you're addressing. So I'd look at Johnny Walker. That's a 200-year-old brand started by a Scottish grocer in Kilmarnock who created this, you know, the world's biggest whiskey brand. We now sell seven bottles of that a second every second of the day, 24 hours a day around the world. And he did it by globalizing that brand. He gave it to ship's captains. He invented marketing um, for the brand, the cartoon on the bottle, etc. Incredible success story. Walker now intervenes on social issues because it has this story of human progress of internationalism. And for instance, some of our marketing, when the Colombians uh, finally ended their civil war, was around celebrating that success and that progress. And consumers told us in Colombia that they loved that the brand was talking about this and joining in with them. And finally, I'll say, it's, we'll talk more in the panel, but you cannot be a successful business unless you engage with some of these issues. Climate change is the obvious one at the moment. That's not a reputational benefit when we talk about climate change directly or through our brands. It's a here and now risk to our business. We had to close a distillery temporarily in Scotland last year because the water temperature was too high in the river that supplied it and you can't make good whiskey if the water temperature is too high. You know, we have hundreds of thousands of farmers that support us across Africa. They're increasingly in areas of, uh, of water shortage related to climate change. If we don't intervene with other companies and governments to address that problem, we will struggle to run our business successfully. Uh, and then finally, on diversity as a point, again, it's not about woke performatism. It's simply if our leadership of our company and our whole workforce doesn't reflect the communities in which we live, work, and sell, we're not going to be successful. If our thinking is incredibly narrow because it comes from just one strain of society, we are not going to succeed. So I'm proud of the fact that half of Diageo's board is female. Our management team is almost half and half. I'm the reason why our management team is not... Um, uh, not fully equal on gender, um, but there were many things to get do, to do that get this job. That was a, a step too far, even for uh, for me. Um, but you know, it does actually.
actually strengthen the company. And the company, as it's gone on this journey to become more diverse in the makeup of its workforce and to talk about issues of diversity in our marketing, has become more successful. Um, and again, as we get into the discussion, we can talk about why that might be. But I just don't think a company will succeed if it's a, a narrow monoculture uh, at the top of that organisation. Thank you very much, Dan. Over to you, Elian. So I'd like to start with an example, which is McDonald's. Um, and you may recall the, the famous McLibel trial that started in the 1980s with a, a couple of um, activists who are to the left of Greenpeace who um, took on the, the giant um, behemoth um, in a case that lasted I think, over 20 years. So that's a sort of classic opposition between um, left-wing activists and the, the big corporate giants. And the other day I was walking to Oxford Street and I came across a branch of McDonald's and its windows were filled with handwritten chalkboards advertising its sort of organic um, meat and, and vegetable products, its salads um, for sale rather than the classic um, burger and chips. They advertise as a company their flexible working policies and so on. And this, this shift really um, uh, emblematises for me what's happened to, to capitalism and consumerism over the last um, two to three decades, um, that you've gone from a model of opposition um, to a model of co-option. And, um, and we see this everywhere with um, housing developers using um, social housing or building a school to legitimise a multi-million pound um, housing development in the Greenbelt, for example. Or we see a multinational corporation setting up unbranded cafes um, in local neighbourhoods to produce that artisanal, funky, uh, local vibe. Starbucks and Tesco have both um, been doing this. Uh, we see the use of plus-size models in the fashion industry, which distract attention from all the, the, um, the, the size zero um, models that dominate the industry. And we see it in Greenwash, which, again, has been around for decades, um, energy companies and oil companies using the, the language and imagery of the environmental movement to, um, to distract attention from its um, real um, dealings. So... Interestingly, you know, what's happened to capitalism, I think rather than capitalism eating itself, I think it's, it seems to be always in crisis and yet it morphs in ways that um, ultimately allow it to, um, to adapt and, and uh, survive and, and prosper. Um, interestingly, this session comes under the ideology strand and I think there's interestingly two definitions of ideology that are relevant here. One is the old... Um, Traditional definition of ideology is an explicit set of political ideals that you might espouse. Um, there's also the other definition of ideology, which is a much more underhand, subtle, deceptive meaning of the word. Um, it's a classic sort of propaganda um, methods. And I think that, that really we're seeing in this shift um, a, a transition from an old model of ideological opposition to a new model of agendas, corporate agendas, capitalistic agendas being advanced under this new, funky, progressive guise. So um, I think this is problematic for a number of reasons. Um, it makes it harder for activists to oppose um, the forces of um, uh, environmental depredation, profit-seeking, and so on. And it le lends a, a veneer of legitimacy to practices like um, low pay, poor conditions, um, 
uh, tax avoidance, um, and, and, and so on. So, um, and I suppose, really, for me, what would um, uh, comprise real ethics in corporate culture would be truth about the real motive, which is about maximising value for shareholders. And, you know, speaking about drinking... You know, that we're told now to drink responsibly, but wouldn't it be more truthful to acknowledge that once in a while we quite like to just get drunk? But that's very difficult in this age of co-option, of, of kind capitalism, of this sort of philanthropic... Everyone has to be philanthropic and moderate um, and polite all the time. But I would say, and this again returns to what Toby was saying, we, we only have ourselves to blame, in a sense, that... Um, that in the new era of, of the culture wars, substantive politics, you know, the politics that really matters, which is about opposed economic interests, um, poverty and inequality, those substantive political campaigns and, and ideological differences have shifted to the symbolic realm of identity politics. And, um, and this is a problem for politics, but it also is a problem for um, corporate, co- corporate profit-seeking and tax avoidance because it en- enables them to deploy these symbolic tokens of identity politics in, in ways that are much easier than, than taking on more substantive political ideals of economic injustice. Perfect. Thank you very much. Over to you now, I um, there was mention of the Venn diagram earlier, and I often talk about being the Venn diagram as being gay and Muslim, and that little slither in between, um, which is where I live. And then I think, oh, wow, I'm a double minority, and I'm sat on this panel where they're talking about minorities, and I'm the minority on the panel as well, being a person of colour. Um, what does that feel like? And then I thought about the word woke, and I thought it's, it, the, the etymology of the words in this context is about um, racial and social justice for African Americans, but we've just co-opted it and appropriated it into this discussion without maybe giving it credence to the, the roots of the words. Um, so I think about minorities a lot, um, as you can tell in my mini Venn diagram, um, and I think it's worrying if people leave their values and their beliefs and their identity at home when they go to work, and, and you see that a lot. You see crumbling souls in these corporate machines being told that they have to think in a certain way and do a certain thing, and it harks memories of Metropolis from um, 1929 or whenever it came out, that people feel like the corporate machine as what it was is now needs to change. And I, I think in this era where we talk about bringing your whole self to work, what does that actually mean and what does that look like? Because only... 30 or 40 years ago you couldn't be out at work Um, you would witness or feel a lot of racism there's still places where that happens but we're hearing and learning about that a lot quicker than the way we were before if you see the news doing the rounds on ITV over the last couple of days the doctor from the NHS talking about someone calling out and saying I want a white doctor that's been happening for many, many years in this country, but we've never heard about those stories. And all of a sudden, if the NHS takes a stand on that and says, actually, we do want a more equal society, are they all of a sudden becoming woke? Perhaps through the way they execute that and the way that that's done could be woke woke washing because it's not done in a sensitive way. But that's a topic about how the marketing and advertising industry struggles to represent society and something that I seem to be giving my life away to try and solve. Um, And... uh, 
no one's actually mentioned Brexit as one of our biggest social issues at the moment. And when I was running press offices for some household brands back in 2016, people were calling out to say, what does this company think about Brexit? And no one would say anything, even though individuals had a view and wanted to put that forward. We were held back and there was so much reticence and hesitation to do that. And I look back and think... Had those organisations said something, would the outcome be different? And even if it was either way, what would that have meant for society? And I think people have slowly woken up to the fact that that could be a good thing if they can use that that force, because our workforce is in its millions and our number of MPs is in the hundreds, and I think the efficacy of the latter um, is probably not as good or as great as the millions could be um, if they rallied round in, in the right way. And I think that assumption that everything would be fine is something that I saw a lot at Pride in London, that when you are organising the biggest LGBT event in, in the UK and people think, oh, isn't it great? Barclays is behind it. Isn't it great that Tesco's is behind it? Actually, no, because we have to change the funding model to give it the scale that it needs and corporates get involved in that in a way, but also that the plight of people who are in a minority group being LGBT doesn't stop. We can't just stop doing Pride. And if we're going to do it in a different way, we've got to do it through a different model. Um, And I saw so many times where organisations would get behind causes, but you could see the difference between the internal team, be it an LGBT group or whatever minority group it was, saying, I want my organisation to be a force for good, versus the marketers saying, this is a great opportunity and we should slap a rainbow on it. And there's countless examples of the former where the AAA put rainbow liveries on their vans and a a driver in Wales took that home to his family and his daughter came out. That came through the fact that his organisation stood up for a cause. To the fact that Primark was then accused of pinkwashing because they were still manufacturing their goods in Turkey where LGBT rights aren't as far forward. So you could really see that battle happening within organisations and that's what I see in the organisation that I run where we try to help organisations be better and more reflective both on the inside and out. The workforce better reflecting society and the marketing resonating with groups Um, because my fundamental belief really deep down perhaps through my experience in those press offices is that organizations right now can drive for a more united kingdom whichever way we go i think organizations need to do something like that like they need to move that forward and if we're banding this term of woke washing around we're actually pushing people away to say well, maybe we shouldn't get involved in those issues because we'll be told off or because people will question our motives and not think that we're, we're in it to make money. And, and I think we have to be realistic. We, we, we live in this world where people are out to make money and capitalism is the model it's in, but I think it's, it's turning into more conscious capitalism. Um, and I think people, uh, especially young people, are um, pushing for that. And I imagine this is going to get covered as we carry on the debate, but when I look at the young people in my business that are coming in in a world where they've had technology, they've had a lot of transparency, and then they look at organisations where they could go and work, they say, I just, I'm, that's not for me. And they would rather go and take part-time jobs somewhere and wait for the right thing to come along that represents their values. They don't have to be LGBT, they don't have to be BAME. I think it's more the fact that they are more conscious of the world that we're in, and they are more aware of the the work that organisations are doing, be it around climate change, be it around social issues, be it around racial issues. Uh, And that's where I think capitalists um, are looking at talent and looking at that lens and saying, how do we get these people in? So for me, I think it's not about, are we woke washing and what does that mean? I think it's the fact that 
the world that we're living in is rapidly changing and corporations are having to find a new way to adapt and live within that. And that's been my experience over the last couple of years. Thank you very much. Norman, over to you. Thank you. Um, well, what I'd like to begin with, um, which I don't think has been really spelt out clearly, although I've agreed with quite a lot of what people have said so far, is that I don't see anything progressive at all in wokeness. Uh, I think that's the first point I, I really think we need to nail, because for me it's, um, it's a kind of expression of, of an infantile <coughs> disorder in society. Now, I'll, I'll try to explain what I mean by that. Um, last week I went to see uh, this uh, uh, Athel Fugard play called uh, Master Harold and the Boys, I don't know if anybody's seen it, uh, about apartheid. Um, brilliant play, uh, extraordinarily powerful, um, about the immorality of a society where children were masters over adults, over black uh, adults. You know, the uh, children were regarded as the bosses and they were referred to as boss, even though they were 5, 6, 10, 11 years old. And I came out of things thinking, Jesus, what a screwed up, you know, how could that possibly be the case? And then it just kind of struck me on my way home. I thought about Greta Thunberg. <laughs> and I thought, well, here we have you know, the, the, the plutocrats of Davos, the Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, in, in fact, all the upper echelons of adult society listening to a 16-year-old who is essentially wrapped up in some death cult um, who's frightened her, out of her wits by adult society, and really struck me that what we have is we're living in a society where we have lost adult authority, where adults have absconded from uh, taking responsibility and authority in society. And, and I actually think that this is what's behind wokeness, and that's really what I'm going to try to explain, because I think that the point to, to really grasp here, and this is the critical thing, is that there is nothing left-wing or positive about being woke. Because what it rests upon is upon the appearance of society. It appears upon our biological makeups, our racial, uh, what we were born as, whether we are male, female. And this kind of childish thing that if a man dresses up as a woman, hides his penis, he's now a woman. This whole transgender madness, uh, which is just l l totally irrational, totally, it, it's, a, it's the kind of thing that children do. You play acting on the school ground and you, you're taking yourself seriously because you actually think you are that. And now you're demanding that everybody recognize that you are that and people recognize that. And the point about this, ladies and gentlemen, is that I would argue that this is not about fighting oppression. This is about institutionalizing oppression. Because the conditions that give rise to those minorities, those identities, you're not trying to fight them. You're trying to get them recognized. You're trying to, there's this hierarchy of pity that you're uh, appealing to, which is not in any way challenging the status quo. If anything, it's propping up society as it exists. And that, to me, is the, is the most backward thing about this. And it's the most, in fact, it's one of the, probably the most reactionary social movement there's been in history. And the reason why I say this is because. The people that ought to know better, i.e. the captains of industry, our politicians, the leaders of our country, they've absconded from the space. They are the ones who can no longer defend their purpose. And it's in that gap of their inability to stand up, for example, and defend profit. 
I mean, I, I've been a Marxist for you know, 50 years, and for me to stand here and argue that actually what we need is some damn capitalist to de- start acting like a capitalist, <laughs> start defending profit. The purpose of corporations, as Milton Friedman uh, made clear in the 60s, which everybody refers to, is to make profit. That's what it's about, and it's through that impulse that society goes forward because companies are forced to innovate, they are forced to provide products and services that people want, and of course corporations will respond to what's happening in society. Advertising marketing is precisely that, and that's what you would expect. I've got no problem with that. Where I've got the problem is that what wokeness does is it's actually a division of labor. It's the kind of militant wing of neoliberalism. Because it's not in any way challenging capitalism. If anything, it's giving capitalism a new ideology, an ideology that steers away from the really thorny issues of class, of economic conditions, of productivity, of the things that really are important to us in society that will make, ensure that we have a future. These are the critical things that are now swept under the carpet because we're all completely confused and stuck in this, this, this uh, world of appearance where we have to meet certain conditions, where we have to mouth and, 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 and it's almost like uh, the, the Chinese Cultural Revolution where in the corporation now, it's not just enough that you have a diversity policy. You actually have to express support for that. And if you don't express support for that, you're immediately suspect. And everything that's wonderful about the diversity uh, programs and projects that all these corporations has, the one thing that's missing is the diversity of opinion. If you disagree with it, and to your point about Brexit, you, know, you are immediately suspect. You are ruled out of order because you are challenging the assumptions and the opinions, which is what I find so incredible. That What you find is this remarkable unity between the, the so-called social justice warriors and the kind of anti-democratic content of corporations and indeed of politics today. And this is my final point. I think this is really the danger here, because what's happening is that as we've become more and more disillusioned with politics, as we've, the more and more the ruling uh, political elites have become, are seen to be illegitimate, etc., what we see happening is an increasing, an increasing movement of the corporation moving into that social and political space where now they are going to look, they're going to take responsibility for climate change. They're going to take responsibility for some of the big issues of the day, which in fact are not issues that can be resolved within a corporation. They are issues that can only be resolved democratically in the political sphere. And we find that what's happening is increasingly the corporation is becoming the space where the democratic discussion is, having, is taking place. But that's not democracy, because there's no accountability within a corporation. Corporations are hierarchies, are very strict hierarchies. And just look at the, you know, the wonderful, you know, the, 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 the nice, touchy-feely Google. Look what happened in Google recently with this employee who, who, who challenged the, the kind of gender basis of, of, of coders, etc. Not only did he get no platformed, he got thrown out because he raised something which went against the stance should be. And I find it incredible that if you're running a corporation... This, this can't be good for you in the long term because what you're actually doing is you're creating a, a, a dynamic 
that is constantly going to undermine your, your, your entire position because the more you play to this woke, wokeness, the more you are going to stratify your customers. So look at Silicon Valley. They all, the, I think it was about 85%, 90% of them funded um, Hillary Clinton in the last election. Um, you know, they all went along with this idea of the deplorables, you know, Clinton's deplorables, etc. Whereas, in fact, in reality, most of the people that buy their products are the deplorables. So at the moment, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot because what you're really going to do is you're not going to be able to fulfill what your real function is, which is that you should concentrate on delivering services and products that people need and want and do it profitably because through that you then create the basis upon which society can be reproduced at a higher level which will benefit everybody. At the moment, I think we're going backwards. And I, I actually see there's a, a, a very unhealthy division of labor between the, what, I, what I call now the wokeocracy. This is the new wokeocracy, this kind of link between the social justice warriors and the captains of industry who've lost their way. Thank you very much, Tom. If we could just, uh, at this uh, point, thank all of the speakers for their introductory remarks. <laughs> now, now, I do want to go out and take some rounds of questions as soon as possible. I have a couple of questions, a couple of things I want to tease out uh, just initially before we go out. So do prepare your questions and points. Um, but uh, firstly, I wanted to focus on, uh, obviously, some tensions between what Toby and Dan are sa saying. There seems to be, um, on the one hand, a sense that through wokeness, capitalism is kind of eating itself. Um, but on the other side, as Dan says, you know, it's doing it to survive. Companies have no choice now but to engage in these, these issues. Um, uh, and I, I was hoping you might be able to explore that tension a little bit more, really. I mean, is it, is it the case now that, um, you know, if Johnny Walker didn't have this narrative around, uh, 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 around it, that people wouldn't buy that whiskey? You know, is, is it a case that if you didn't have... If Gillette didn't, you know, talks about toxic masculinity uh, in its adverts, people might buy another brand of razor. You know, are, are these ser serious kind of issues? Dan, perhaps if I can start with you and then move to Toby. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, you can talk at the level of the individual brands or you can talk at the level of the, the whole corporation because we're a stable of a, a large number of, uh, of brands. And, and I do agree that you have no choice but to engage in, in these issues because the different actors and stakeholders you have will come and ask you about them, was the, the point I, I began with. Um, and I'm all for defending profit, um, Norman. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we wouldn't have a company without uh, a profit, and we're, thankfully at the moment we're a very profitable company. But I think at the moment it, it's sometimes, and you get this trope on both the left and the right, you know, exaggerating the power of the corporation, you know, the, this sort of sinister force that's able to shape people's hopes and dreams and get them to act against their own rational self-interest. And we sit sort of twiddling our moustaches in the boardroom and, you know, dreaming up marketing campaigns that will make you uh, suddenly change your views on fundamental issues of self and identity. It doesn't work like that. I've worked in government. I've worked in several corporations. Uh, and actually, when you're on the corporation side of it, you don't actually feel that powerful when you go head-to-head -head with a government or a regulator. Um, you know, if corporations were so incredibly powerful through these debates, you know, we wouldn't be handing a third of our revenues directly to governments, well over £6 billion a year we take, and we have to immediately hand to governments in the form of duty and, and other forms of taxation. And, uh, you know, if we were all powerful... We certainly wouldn't be taxed, uh, uh, you know, in the UK, um, which has the highest alcohol taxes in the world. Um, what I would say, though, is, um, you know, why do we market and why do we market on these themes? And uh, again, you get this trope, particularly on the left, but you also get on the right, sort of false consciousness being created by marketing. 
Um, and again, it simply does not work. And other speakers have touched on this. You know, we don't control and shape consumer demands. I cannot make you, through marketing, do something you don't want to do. What I can do is try and persuade you that our products are better than our competitors, try and persuade you that they're worth paying a premium for, and when we innovate and bring something new out, tell you about it so you're aware of it and may choose to buy it. But, you know, we think of, uh, of marketing in terms of occasions and, you know, why you might this evening at the drinks reception choose a Tanqueray and tonic over a beer, you know, and how do we persuade you to choose our gin rather than someone else's. I can't create an occasion which is, you know, having whiskey on your breakfast cereal. You know, even if we wanted to do that, you can't do it because the consumer does not want it. So we go to meet the consumer demand. We can influence at the margin over choice by convincing you that our products and services are worth having, but we can't control, control your mind. Toby. Yeah, um, interesting point about Gillette. Um, as I understand it, since Gillette's um, toxic masculinity ad, sales of Gillette razors have fallen off a cliff. And this yeah. is often cited as an example of the uh, maxim, go woke, go broke. <laughs> I, think, um, I think that I agree that um, large corporations have embraced um, this um, sort of neo-Marxist, postmodernist ideology that originated uh, uh, with various French thinkers like Foucault and Derrida via kind of grievance studies departments. It's entered the kind of bloodstream of the corporate world, I think, for, for largely cynical reasons, as a way of trying to co-opt capitalist companies, trying to co-opt the, their critics in this new guise. But I do, uh, so I wouldn't dispute that, but I do think it's ultimately uh, going to be a form of self-harm. Um, I think that uh, Schumpeter's Schumpeter's hypothesis is that um, uh, the reason he thought that um, capitalism was eventually uh, doomed is because of what he called creative destruction. Capitalism sweeps all before it. It does it in order to survive, but in order to survive, in the course of reinventing itself and sweeping away these apparently inefficient obstacles to the maximisation of profit, uh, inevitably sweeps away the very bases of capitalism itself. So capitalism depends upon, as various... Uh, 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 people like Max Weber and others have pointed out it depends upon a kind of Christian Western tradition, the family, the institution of marriage, values like delaying gratification, thrift, honesty, and so forth. And if, if you sweep these things away, and let's not overlook the fact that many of people like Foucault and Derrida were fundamentally antagonistic to these values. They were anti-traditional. Uh, and as, as you sweep these things away, so it's hard to imagine capitalism being able to survive without this kind of framework of institutions and values to preserve it. But I think the other reason for being, for being, for, for, for being well, from, from your point of view, uh, optimistic uh, that, that capitalism will eventually eat itself is that capitalism seems to be largely politically homeless at the moment. There's a really good essay that Thomas Piketty wrote uh, about a year ago, which he's working up into a book, which is due to be published next year, in which he talks about this realignment in politics in Britain, France, and America over the past 70 years. So 70 years ago, uh, the people, people who were uh, on higher incomes and well-educated tended to support right-of-centre parties, uh, uh, less-educated, lower-incomes, left-of-centre parties. Now it's the opposite in Britain, France and America and in other Western countries. So now you see uh, lower-income, less-educated people supporting right-of-centre parties, the Republicans in the US, the Conservative Party here. A recent poll by YouGov showed that uh, C2DEs 
favoured Tories over Labour by something like a 15-point margin. Uh, and you see um, more educated, higher earners supporting left-of-centre parties, like the Liberal Democrats, uh, the, the Labour Party in America, <coughs> Democrats. And it's really... For, 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 but but, but, but uh, it used to be that right-of-centre parties were defenders of capitalism, and there was this alignment between right-of-centre parties and uh, the private sector, the corporate world. That alliance has fractured, uh, and I think we've, what, we, what we've now see is that neither political party is really willing to defend capitalism, as Howard pointed out. So on the one hand, you have this kind of uh, virulently anti-capitalist parties, you have sort of mildly anti-capitalist parties in the centre, and then you have these right-of-centre parties which traditionally defended capitalism, like the Conservative Party and the Republicans, but because they've now got this new customer base of um, uh, less educated working class voters who aren't particularly in favour of capitalism, they're not particularly enthusiastic about defending capitalism either. I'm sure we'll see that in the forthcoming Conservative Manifesto. Thank you very much. Um, Asad, I wanted to give you the opportunity to come back on, the, uh, on Norman's charge um, that uh, by uh, asking companies to basically start taking a stance on social issues, you might actually be institutionalising oppression in some ways. Um, uh, because, uh, I mean, w- one example, I, I know so- uh, someone who voted leave in the education sector, uh, a company that's um, uh, uh, that that um, my, my trade body represents, mm-hmm. uh, and because their their company had come out as a Remain company, it became very hard for them to talk about their political views or, or even um, or, or even feel like they could say anything about it at all. They actually ended up leaving in the end. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so so I mean in. Um, isn't there an issue that if you don't have the right views within one of these woke corporations, you could end up either being silenced or pushed out? Um, and given the fact that at the start you were saying, you know, um, basically it's really hard not to bring yourself to work anymore. You know, you, f- you feel you have to bring yourself to work. If, you, you're, if your ideology conflicts with the ideology that the corporation is, um, uh, is advocating, uh, isn't that uh, oppressing the workers in a different way? I, I think I think I think it is, um, and a lot of the time, the, the bring your whole self to work is not done with a great deal of depth around what that means. So I think lots of people, and you pointed out um, the issue, the, the trans debate at the moment, where lots of people think that if if they don't support trans rights in the way that, that a few people think they should, then then they're out, and that's where I think organisations are just moving too quickly in this to think, well, we have to be this way because we know it will garner us the right kind of tweets and the right kind of press, uh, and we'll do it that way. I think in the in the incidents of, of Brexit and a company being pro-Brexit, I think this is just the course that's going to run over the next couple of years, and what we need to start seeing is empathy within organisations to understand how those different views can coexist, because that will then become a point of um, competitiveness if an organisation does rally in a certain way, then another one might go in a different way, and then you'll see them competing with each other. Um, but I, I think it, it's massively messy at the moment, and I, I don't have an answer for it, but I think it's the, the time and the empathy which is what we're not looking at. Thank you. Uh, just before we go out to the audience, now we'll start taking questions in a minute. Um, just one final question to Elian and Norman, if you want, either want to come back on that or, or on this. Um, uh, Elian, you talked about, uh, obviously, the traditional nature of companies to maximise value for its shareholders. 
investments. What we are now seeing, though, is a rise of ethical investors that talk about the fact that they're social impact investors rather than actually investors that are actually looking for a financial return. So you have companies structuring themselves around social return rather than monetary, monetary return. You know, you, you hear much more about patient capital in the sector nowadays where people aren't looking for a financial return until much later on. I mean, is the nature of investment changing as well? And actually, is that traditional na nature of a company, the role of a company to maximise value for its shareholders changing? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're seeing that the rise, you know, this is coming up through the business schools, that, um, you know, that, that there's a new model of entering into business um, in order to shape a better world, create a better world, rather than just to, uh, to make money. And I think, you know, I, I don't doubt the sincere motivations of many of those people entering corporate um, culture and investing ethically and so on. But I suppose that I, for me, it's the ideological work that, that gets done through that fusion. You know, this really interesting phrase, bringing your whole self to work. You know, I, I think those millennials who are working at, um, at, in these jobs should not bring them their whole selves to work. You know, if, if they have to work for the man, as it used to be called, you know, we should reserve a part of ourselves that's able to oppose um, corporate profit-seeking and... and and yeah, and I agree to be honest. The corporation should be honest, um, and and that's a, that's a real ethical position is to be honest about um, their their real motivation, which is to make money. So, I think there's all all sorts of problems with this kind of Davosification, this sort of philanthropic um, turn that that corporate culture is, is taking. That we see this this fusion that that really takes away the the um, the grounds for an opposition to profit-seeking and tax avoidance and creates this sort of um, murky um, compound between, between the two. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, well, just to continue from that point about bringing your, your whole self to work, I mean, you know, that's not, that's not uh, capitalism, that's serfdom. You know, the whole point about capitalism is that you don't bring your whole self to work. You sell your labour power. You're in a contract. You don't belong to the capitalist. You you own your own body, your own capacity to work. And the whole idea that, that this is what a corporation should be doing uh, frightens the hell out of me because it means that you basically have to subscribe to everything that company believes in. And, you know, why, when I buy a product, a Gillette razor, I don't really give a damn how many black or gay or whatever people there might be on the, the Gillette board. You know, I, I'm concerned about oppression and I'm concerned about sexual and racial oppression in society, but I'll fight for that in the political sphere. When I buy a razor from Gillette, I'm not buying morals, I'm buying a product that's going to do something for me. Um, and I think we're getting really confused, really basically confused here in such a way that um, we've turned the world on its head. You know, we're not interested in apps that will check our privilege. We want to check our bank balances. We want to check that our flight is on time. We want to check that, you know, an arrangement we've made with somebody is going to, that they've been delayed or they're ill or when I'm in an emergency that, you know, I don't want to know how many, how much money Apple has given to some social uh, cause uh, when I try and make an emergency call on one of their bloody iPhones, right? You know, that, that's not how the world works. I mean, that, let's face it, how many of you, you know, know about the diversity policy of a company that you buy stuff from. Maybe some of you do do that. Maybe you do that research. Uh, I would hate to go shopping with you. Um, but, 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 you know, life's too short. 
you know, um, these things are important, but I think there's a place and a space for where these things are properly resolved. They're not resolved in our attempt to try and transform the corporate world into this, you know, I, I, what we would see as this ideal, um, equal, no oppression, uh, etc. because that's not how companies work. Companies are not democracies. Uh, they are hierarchies. They are there for a purpose, which is to drive profit. And whether we like it or not, you know, that's what they should be doing because that's what benefits us. Thank you, Norman. Lots on the table there, so I think it's definitely time to go out. What I'm going to do is take a range of points and questions and then come back to the panel. So um, can I see the people with the microphones? Um, yo, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, if we could start with the gentleman down here and then we'll, we'll do the, the guy behind him now. If you want an example of self-harm that's done by woke consciousness, you've really got to look at universities because they're behaving exactly the way that you've described. And if mandatory training on everything from unconscious bias to um, um, uh, various attitudes to decolonising the curriculum. And some universities have 90 policies. And it's not a joke. You can't ignore them. A number of people I hear are now on disciplinaries because they've said something that's against any of those policies. OK, that may happen in every workplace, but the, the tragedy for universities is those places where you have free thinking. You know, and as more and more they see themselves as businesses, you know, instead of leeching off the state, which is what they actually do, they um, stop free thinking in universities. I mean, it's, it's destruction of the university. I think it's a slightly... Um, it's not a side point, because a lot of the people in universities are coming into business schools mm -hmm. and spreading this through uh, to, to universities. And when you see well, you know, what managers usually want from their employees, it's some list of things that have come out of universities. Usually it doesn't help productivity at all. But just at one point on McDonald's, I mean, the thing, it was called the hate brand of all time, and always has been in many ways. But it has never stopped anybody going in. You know, McDonald's expanded and expanded. Now, you don't care what you see in the window. You know, you're going for a Big Mac or a fillet of fish. If we go to the gentleman behind that, and then... Yeah, hi. Um, my friend works at Facebook, and she's a lesbian, and there's an LGBT uh, or black or woman in tech event going on every other day, w without exaggeration. And I wonder how it is that... It, it, to speak to the fact that it was said that this is genuine, I wonder how it is that this could be genuine if, in my mind, being more obsessed with the immutable characteristics of a person, that won't, that won't result in a post-racial society. We're, as far as I see it, we're in a better time than ever to be a minority and to be more obsessed with it than ever. I don't see how that gets us to a point at which we don't care about it and it doesn't matter. So how is it that if a company like Facebook is so obsessed with this, they could be genuinely striving for a better future. It seems anathema to me that that's, that that's the direction you'd take. Uh, hello, this very interesting conversation. I mean, it occurred to me when I was hearing this that uh, 20 years ago there was an economist called Alfred D. Chandler who didn't pre predict wokeness, etc. But in terms of history in the structure of capitalism, he's very good on the, briefly, as brief as I can, on the history of changing nature of capitalism over the 20th century. So you'd have someone like Samuel, Marcus Samuel, the head of Shell, who he'd, he'd encourage shareholders to invest in his company to take a risk with him. And very briefly, what we've ended up now is more a situation where, as, as people said, you've got shareholder value, etc., etc. You've had the financialization of companies. 
But in that process, you've got a, a, a situation where you have had a more of a managerial class, not a straightforward capitalist class. And inevitably, I would see it, and in, in, in Dan, in some ways, you know, you are a kind of representative of that person. It's not a personal attack or anything. It's more of a, as I say, the changing nature of the structure of capitalism. But to me, by the nature of, of that group, they are going to be inevitably more risk-averse and concerned about the way... Uh, they manage the, the resources and the assets of their companies. So if um, there are things which challenge uh, what they do, they are more likely to either divest out of it. I suppose there's an element of a separation from the, the purpose and the production of a company to it becoming more of a financial asset where things are susceptible to uh, either being sold off. I mean, Diageo, to me, is more of a collection of brands which have been bought, sold accumulated, then sold off. It's not like, say, you've got Rolls-Royce or something like that that has got something more tangible. So I suppose my main point is I see a certain inevitability to this um, because of the rise of the sort of managerial type of class. And as well as there being a risk-averse, inevitably there's going to be a lack of kind of ambition as well because it's the original entrepreneurial spirit has not occurred. I mean, I haven't got any answers to this, but I just think it's worth discussing this in, those kind, in that kind of historical context as well. Thanks very much. I'm going to take three or four more. If, if you could pass the microphone to that gentleman with, in the orange top there. These diversity quotas and such are, and the approach to diversity is anti-meritocratic. Um, current, in, I'm, I'm interested in the, the inside. You're talking about this wokeness on the outside, the way co companies project, but what I'm seeing it is from within the company itself where I'm getting emails now that have a little rainbow thing at the bottom mm. from people saying, you know, that they celebrate LGBT. And I'm thinking back, I mean, I was in a rock band back in the 70s, and our lead singer was gay. And it never occurred to me. I didn't care one way or the other. And I certainly didn't celebrate it. Uh, what I celebrated was that he was a great singer. And if he hadn't been gay, that would have been fine too. I and mean, we didn't care one way or the other. And I think there's, and, but to start seeing this stuff at the bottom of your emails... Now you're thinking, well, if I don't participate in this, if I don't put a little rainbow at the bottom of my emails when they go out, then now I'm, mm. I'm being on the bad side here. And the, the companies now are now sending us on three-line whip inclusivity courses, mm. right? You got to sit there and, you know, essentially this is cultural re-education. And I'm wondering what the panel thinks about this obligation that the uh, corporations are now making on their staff to participate in being brainwashed. I don't agree with a lot of the things that may be said in these courses, but if you don't go or if you say the wrong thing in the course, that's black mark against you as well. Luckily, I'm old enough in the tooth here that it doesn't really much matter to me anymore. But to the young people coming up, I do worry for them. Gentleman there, then the lady there, if you could pass the mic to her. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Firstly, I'd like to thank... Sorry, uh, Mike Buchanan lead of the political party Justice for Men and Boys. And I'd firstly like to thank Dr. Norman Lewis. Um, I can't believe that I'm agreeing with a Marxist about the corporate sector. So that was the most remarkable start to my weekend. So, so, so thanks. <laughs> thanks very much for that. <clears throat> but my question really is to Dan Mobley. S seven years ago, 2012, I launched the Campaign for Merits in Business, and we've published six longitudinal studies showing a causal link between increasing the proportion of women on boards and corporate financial decline. I know, of, I know of not one longitudinal study. I know of not one long, that, that has never been challenged. I know of not one longitudinal study showing a causal link between 
increasing gender diversity on boards and corporate financial, pardon me, corporate financial improvements. So my question to you is, should companies be seeking greater gender diversity on their boards um, in the light of the evidence? Thank you. Lady there, and if you could just pass the mic to the gentleman there. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask a question again about pride and LGBT rights. Um, I wanted to, I was wondering, the movement of pride, which started as a sort of rebellion against the idea of, like, the mainstream, and how now it's morphed into a sort of way for corporations to um, profit off of a growing progressive left. Um, I wanted to ask whether or not that was due to a movement towards acceptance or whether it was just another morph of capitalism trying to bank off of this new progressive growing left. Thanks very much. Uh, and then we're going to come back to the speakers in just a second, but one final point here. Thank you very much. Um, as a student in sustainability management in a business school, uh, it was really interesting, but I was just wondering what do you think about um, reporting sustainability in companies is getting really mainstream and we're actually studying these reports and I find it quite weird that you only talked about marketing when we talk about virtue signaling even though this is becoming the standards. Is this a future? Does it uh, have any legitimacy um, because it's getting into more complexity of the society and it's 300 pages PDFs so I don't know what you think about it. I'm really curious. Thank you. Thank you. Right, there's a lot on the table there. Don't feel the need to respond to everything, but just pick a few things to come back on. Who would like to start? Um, oh, I don't mind starting. Um, um, I, I was glad that the gentleman in the front row brought up um, uh, the higher education sector, um, and that was going to be one of my examples of um, how going woke ends up with you going broke. Uh, and there were, lot, there were lots of good examples in this, uh, of this. So um, uh, the University of Missouri... In 2015, there was a, a lot of protests on campus at the University of Missouri, and there was the famous clip of the woman on YouTube, I think she was a, an assistant communications professor, saying when being asked a couple of perfectly anodyne questions by a journalist, uh, I need some muscle here, some muscle to, to force this journalist to stop questioning me. Uh, and um, rather gratifyingly, um, application rates to the University of Missouri since 2015 have fallen by 35%, uh, forcing the university to close seven halls of residence and lay off 400 members of staff. In eastern Massachusetts, eight colleges have either closed or merged in the past four years. In Vermont, three colleges have gone to the wall in 2019 alone. And most experts on higher education believe that things are only going to get worse. So Clayton Christensen, a Harvard Business School professor, predicts that up to 50% of America's colleges and universities will go bankrupt in the next 10 to 15 years. Now, the reason for that the reasons for that are multifactorial, but I think the lack of tolerance for free speech and intellectual freedom in the higher education sector, not just in America, but here too, is surely playing a part. And interestingly, you should bring up the uh, lack of uh, tolerance for free speech in the corporate sector. I think it's something you raised yourself. Norman, you mentioned the sacking of James Damore. In Facebook, there have been a number of uh, flare-ups recently with people who have right-of-centre views trying to form right-of-centre groups within the company, uh, finding themselves punished and pushed out. Uh, and recently, I I'm in the process of setting up something I'm calling the Free Speech Union, uh, mm. which is a mass membership organisation which defends free speech and intellectual freedom. And my initial thought was that it should be uh, confined to, full membership should be confined to people who have a professional 
uh, are professionally engaged in the communication of ideas, but in a broad sense. So not just intellectuals, academics, pundits, writers, but also comedians, poets, screenwriters, playwrights, and so forth. But I got so much, when I've written about this, I've written about it a couple of times, the response from people in the corporate sector who feel that their free speech is under threat and who feel an enormous pressure within the company to conform with the kind of social justice ideology which has entered the company's bloodstream uh, is so great. They've, 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 they're crying out to join an organisation like this to protect their rights. And so I've now, I've now decided to enlarge the membership criteria. So anyway, if anyone is interested in getting involved, joining the Free Speech Union, uh, the email address to email me on is jsmillsociety at gmail.com. And I'm hoping to have something launched in the new year, JS Mill Society, for obvious reasons, at uh, gmail.com. And I'm calling it the Free Speech Union. Thank you, Debbie. Dan? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm trying not to take offence at my beautiful brands being compared to Rolls-Royce jet engines and, uh, and expensive cars. I think ours are very tangible. I mean, they're literally tangible and, and tasteable. Um, but what I would say, I mean, on the question that was directly addressed to me around the women on boards and financial performance, well, 2012 is a long time ago. I'd, I'd be very interested in your research, but there's been a sea change in terms of female representation on boards between 2012 and now. Um, although the data points are relatively small in number, there aren't actually that many large corporations in the, in the UK. Um, but to me, it, it feels pretty suspect, the idea that adding a small number of women to the boards of, and management of large organisations will somehow impair their financial performance. I just, I really don't buy that. And certainly the experience of my own company's decision-making is better when our workforce and our leadership is, is, is more diverse and more reflective of the places where we, uh, where we operate. One thing I would like to, we, we've looked at this lens in terms of consumption decisions. We've looked at it through marketing decisions. But actually, just to think about the experience of actually working in a large company, um, how many people here actually work for a listed company? Okay, there's a few of you there. I mean, I don't know if your experience of your employer is as a kind of slave or serf, um, but that's certainly not what it feels like in the companies that I've worked in. For Diageo, we are a stable of brands and we are people. There isn't really anything else to the company, and we are waging a ferocious war for talent to attract people, particularly younger people, to come and work for us. And if their experience of working for us is so utterly miserable that, you know, their hidebound ideology where they're censored and forced to kind of conform to performative wokeism, they aren't going to hang around very long. They're going to go somewhere else. And companies do have different cultures. Um, and I've experienced that from working at several. And people do have choices, whether they're skilled operators on the lines of our factories operating the machinery that makes our products, uh, or bottles it right through to the marketeers that we're trying to get to come and work for us rather than, say, a Facebook. You know, the culture of your company matters as well as the salary and conditions that you provide. Uh, and I simply don't buy this idea that people are kind of a fixed lump of labor um, that, you know, we get to exploit and, and control in these ways uh, because they just aren't and they will, they will leave us if we, uh, if we operate like that. Um, and uh, the, the final point I'll make in terms of, uh, of attracting talent is, you know, people want to feel a sense of purpose through their work, um, and they want to feel that their employer is something that's adding value to society. And, and I kind of find it amazing the way we've sort of in this debate talked about young people or implied that young people are all this kind of, you know, homogenous group of Tatiana McGrath type 
you know, um, woke Corbynites. That's not my experience of managing or hiring young people into my organisation. They are not, they're highly heterogeneous in their views. Um, they're often highly entrepreneurial. They have very high expectations of their employer and the workforce, both in terms of the kind of investment that we made in them. The, they want exciting work, they want um, interesting work, and they want purposeful work. You know, I spent uh, a really engaging couple of hours last week with um, 50 or so students from my old university, and they were not hidebound by this kind of woke ideology, nor were they looking to kind of import this into the DNA of the, the company. They wanted to know what it was like to work there, what we did day to day, and what they would get out of it for their career if they came to, to, to join us. So I, I wouldn't, ref you know, I just don't see this kind of hidebound ideology controlling companies in the way that's been described. Just to quickly come back on that, Dan, um, what you're overlooking is that often uh, the corporate desire to attract talent and to create an environment in which everyone feels comfortable and can thrive is often the excuse used for shutting down dissent within a company. So in the case of James Damore, um, he challenged uh, the prevailing orthodoxy within Google about why there weren't more women software engineers, why, there weren't, why more women weren't attracted to uh, a tech company like Google. Um, and, uh, and the prevailing orthodoxy was well, it's all to do with sexism and unconscious bias and prejudice and discrimination and so forth. And he, he, he appealed to some sort of elementary science, um, social science, to show that actually it wasn't all to do that and there, were, there was an alternative explanation. He was fired because that in itself apparently created a hostile working environment, would have put off other women from applying for the company, would have inhibited women within the company from putting themselves forward for jobs within the company. So the idea that it, it, the, two, the two, it doesn't necessarily, the fact that you want to create uh, environments which kind of uh, appeal to talent, that's often the rationale for um, saying, no, you can't, you, if you dissent, if you, I mean, even, even, even saying you're in favour of meritocracy and you think that people should be promoted on talent alone, that is described now as a microaggression in various companies. Something it's pro mm. You're prohibited from actually yeah. saying that, and if you do, you can face a disciplinary process. Mm. Can I just one very, very, one very, very quick, quick point on that? Then we're no, I, I hear you there. If it's intrinsic to the culture of an organisation that it censors people um, using its prevailing orthodoxies, um, that's both bad, but also I suspect that organisation, that company, will not prosper for, a very, for forever. It may manage to sort of go along for a long period of time, but over time it will alienate its workforce and it will lose them. So I think there's a question between those examples. Are they intrinsic to the culture of that organisation um, or are they something that over time will be detrimental to it? Because I agree that companies often do do stupid things towards their workforce and suffer for it over time. We're going to have to pause that there. Uh, but, but there will be another opportunity to come back in a little while. But I, I see a lot of hands at the back. So, uh, Eliane, if I could turn to you, and then we'll couple, a couple more quick points here, then we'll go back out again. Yeah, so just to pick up on the reference to McDonald's, you know, that they were popular even when they were being un ostensibly unhealthy. And, um, you know, I think it's a really interesting theme that's developing here about denial of, of our dark sides, you know, and actually, yeah, McDonald's is popular because of that sugar, salt and fat hit. You know, we like to get drunk, even if we're told to be responsible. Um, and, you know, so there's, a, and there's a denial of profit-seeking um, uh, in modern capitalism. There's also a denial of our prejudices, that we kind of create this hygienic, strictly enforced hygienic sphere around what we say, but those... Um, uh, imperfect impulses towards prejudice and hatred are still there under the surface that the language doesn't reach. 
And but you know where you know, and I, I I completely hear what you're saying about what it feels like to be within a corporation that you know I'm sure. But, you know, not saying that you're like Boris Johnson, but I'm sure Boris Johnson feels like he's on the hook. You know, he doesn't feel really comfortable and hegemonic, you know, um, in his position. But we have to look at the big picture here. Where is the denial of these dark side, sides of, of, of our nature, our human nature? Where is the return of the pressed, r- repressed occurring? It's not in corporations. It's in politics. And that is the sphere that is under attack. Corporations, as I see it, are riding high um, if we look at the big picture. And somebody mentioned um, Facebook. So the prime example of this kind of new capitalism is Silicon Valley. They embraced this and and promoted this rhetoric of interactivity, engagement, you know, communication, opening things up, level playing field. And and, and this is the prime example of, of hegemonic, um, monopoly capitalism in action. Silicon Valley is not vulnerable right now, and they have promoted precisely the form of woke capitalism that we're talking about. We should remember this is not a new phenomenon. You know, we, we think, as we're surrounded by identity politics, it feels very new. But actually, this blue-collar capitalism, this appeal of the... you know, we used to be a, an opposition between the Davids and the Goliaths, but over the last few decades, in politics as well as in corporate culture, the Goliaths have, have purported to be on the side of the Davids. And you know, so this kind of blue-collar um, capitalism, blue-collar conservatism that we've seen on both sides of the Atlantic has been with us for a very long time. So we shouldn't just think that this kind of um, funky corporatism is, is somehow just a, a, a phenomenon attached to identity politics. Thank you. Um, short points from Asad and, and Norman. Then uh, we'll go up to the floor and then I'll come back to you, to you again to, to make some final sum, summing up points. So, so Asad first. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to meander around the Facebook point, the managerial class, and then the pride point. So I think the, the level of um, insert protected characteristic here type training that's happening. So <laughs> like I, I am a XYZ, ABC something. I think that has done something for minority groups that has then made majority groups feel like they're the minority because they're not being heard and talked about. And then when they do speak up to the point of Google, they're at their sideline. And I think that's a really tricky and messy place inside organisations at the moment because the more people that I go and speak to, the more they say, we don't know what we're meant to do and we don't know where to go and what, what we're meant to stand for. But if we do an event, maybe it'll be OK. And that's where I think there's, there's not enough rigour behind how you do this and how you do this in a way that's actually going to go back to bottom line and go back to dividend driving. Um, On the point about rainbow flags in your signature, what I'm seeing within the LGBT community is a reclamation of the flag because people are saying, well, corporates are just using the flag for any given purpose. And what that flag started as was defiance and was protest. And I can see how alienating that can feel because to your point about the lead singer... He didn't need to be celebrated. He needed to be a good singer, and that was, first and foremost, what you celebrated. But probably at that time, society looked at him in a different way to where LGBT people are today. So I think there is a really fine line, and that's the point about Pride. This year, with the, the campaign that we ran was the Pride Jubilee, because it was 50 years since Marsha P. Johnson um, threw the shot glass or the brick. We, we don't know. And that was Pride was 
that moment, right, that we then celebrated, and then all of a sudden you see Barclays with Tom Daly on a bus, and you think, holy, how did that happen? Um, and, and I think that's where Pride now has a new purpose, because it's the, it's the groups within the LGBT plus that don't have societal acceptance, that need Pride more than ever, but corporates are really reticent to get behind them. Corporates are really reticent to get behind asexual people or people of colour who are in the LGBT community. And I think that's where we're seeing an edge on it um, and, and where Pride is going to have to develop and, and move forward. But my personal view is that um, corporates will still have to play a role in that because the role of LGBT people society has changed, um, but it, w it will evolve. Thank you. Norman? And then yeah. I'm going to go out to the um, floor again. Well, just very briefly, I mean, I, I, I have some sympathy with what uh, Dan was saying about young people and some of the aspirations that they might have, that they don't necessarily just spontaneously uh, veer towards accepting all of this stuff. And the problem is that when they come into the corporation, they, you know, that's where they come up against the adults. And it's the adults, particularly the HR people and the communications people, and I've worked in big companies, global companies, who are normally the most um, unimaginative um, tick box, you know, um, and they, this idea that they have to get down with the youth to attract the talent and everything, you know, they just screw it up 100% because what they do is they put in place this kind of draconian codes, etc., that you have to subscribe to. And if you don't, and I'm to the point that uh, you made correctly about your signature and all of that, you know, if you're a young person starting out in your career path, um, and you want to get ahead in business, you've got to play the game. You don't play the game, you're out in your ass. I mean, that's what happened with Google. That's what happened. You know, Facebook, Silicon Valley, it's the most draconian, um, dictatorial environments. I mean, I, I worked for one of the big five uh, for many years, and my God, when I saw the transformation that took place over 10 years in terms of, of what was expected from everybody, as I said to you earlier, it's not simply that you... Um, you have to voice, you cannot be silent, you cannot sit there and say, well, actually, I disagree with this, um, or I'm on a course about you know, being aware of my racial bias, etc., which I didn't even know I had, um, and I'm thinking, this is a load of bollocks. Um, this is just outrageous that you're making this assumption about me, and if I had to voice that, what do you think would have happened to me in my career? You know, I'm not going to be the next CEO of that company, and this is the problem. You're wielding an enormous amount of, of, of uh, power over these, these individuals. And as I say, this is not the same as I don't agree with Boris Johnson on X. And in this coming election, I can go and vote and I can change, I can do something about that. You can't do that inside a corporation. It is not a democracy as you very well know. Um, and, and the problem is that what happens to these, this generation is that instead of them being able to challenge this, they get sucked into it. Whether they like it or not, they become part of it. And that, that just becomes part of the culture, just spontaneously reproduces itself. Thanks, Norman. I'm going to try and get as many points on the floor as possible, so please do try and keep them succinct. Um, panellists, you, you'll only get one chance to respond to everything at the end, so um, do be prepared. <laughs> Thank you. I've got a question for Dr. Norman Lewis. You explain the rationale of capitalism and, indeed, its uses very clearly. How do you square that with your declared Marxism? 
<laughs> okay. The, the gentleman with the cap on right, right next to you there. Yes. If you could uh, stand up, please. That would be great. Recently made a trip over to America, and I was in the basement of my uncle's house. And my cousins were a few years older than me, sort of 10 years older than me. And I was really fascinated to see their music collection. And it was reflective of the social changes that were happening in America in the late 60s when the folk scene came up. And the folk scene was seen by a great many people as sort of capturing the spirit of change in an age and transforming America. And then sometime in the early 70s, the corporate interests became involved and what was really a grassroots movement became corporatized and ended up being sort of subsumed into the culture and then we had the monkeys come along and, and everything sort of turned into what well, it was just another phase of the cycle of history. I'm just really interested in the panel's take on what we're seeing really is just the sort of turn of history and what's happening with in terms of wokeness at the moment is something similar to that but with the internet driving it rather than having gatekeepers at say the magazines and te televisions allowing people uh, an opportunity to raise their voice what we have instead is bullying uh, mobbing which I know um, some of the panelists have actually encountered in, the, in their life transforming what could be uh, a transformative positive into something quite ugly but I, i'd like i'd be very interested to get the, the panelists view on the reflection on what happened in the late 60s early 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 70s with the connection to what we're experiencing now thank you very much there's a lady i think right at the back there um i find it interesting um that the quaker chocolate makers may have been some of the first woke catalysts when they set up, set up companies to produce a chocolate drink uh, as an antidote to the alcohol problems of the 19th century. But as Diago, uh, Diago's uh, success attests, they weren't ultimately successful in that. Um, but they're still here in the form of their trusts, woke and not broke, and um, largely underpinning the left these days, arguably. Um, so that was my point. And my question was, uh, should so-called fossil fuels be allowed to fund certain um, underfunded areas of government responsibility, such as the arts or not. Thank you very much. Uh, right, I'm going to take the, the gentleman just there with his hand up on the aisle there. Hi, thanks for such a great discussion, and particularly the gentleman from Diageo. It's great that a representative from a company I've given so much money to over the years <laughs> <laughs> can come and say thank you, speak to the customer base, loyal customer base. Uh, just a quick one. I just want to flip it on its head a little bit, the discussion. We haven't talked much about any companies that have been actively unwoke and whether they have paid a social or financial penalty for that because it's not immediately clear to me that they do. Uh, just thinking about, say, Chick-fil-A in the States, they do really well. Um, Protein World, the Beachbody Ready adverts, I think they did really well. And they had a very aggressive policy to responding to criticism, um, you know, rude words and all of that. So I just want to throw that out there and see if there's any discussion to be had on that point. Cheers. Thank you. Right, I'm, I'm going to take two more. So the, the okay, the, the gentleman there, then the lady here, and then that's it, I'm afraid. So the guy there with his hand, yep. Hi, thank you for the talk. It was very interesting, everyone. Um, I wanted to respond to a point that, that Dan made um, several times in the debate about the fact that corporations, following from what this gentleman said as well, that corporations basically can't survive now if they aren't, quote-unquote, woke, okay? And I would challenge the quite convenient narrative that corporations have had us believe in, in PR and in, in the public that they're making this sort of, you know, really deep moral decision, they're the good guys, they've decided to get on the good side of politics. Corporations for centuries have benefited fantastically from ignoring all of these things. They've really done, sorry, they've done really successful things ignoring, 
you know, gender slavery or race slavery or anything like that. Um, and what I wanted to say is that not only is it that, that profit really does motivate, you know, companies being interested in these things, if you're not going to make money because people aren't going to like your company anymore, that's a problem. But also legislation, right? There is a very, very long history of progressive legislation way back from the mid-1850s, which has forced companies to comply with these things. And time and time and time and time again, there are really big precedents in UK law where companies have tried to ignore all of these things. Corporations have ignored respecting human rights, as we would understand them today. So I would say, do not think, considering the very long history of this, that actually there is a bigger problem in the structure of how corporations work that we need to consider and not really believe that they, you know, they've always been the good guys. Thank you very much. One final point from the floor, this, this lady here, then I'm going to go back to the, uh, the speakers. You're going to have a minute each to just summarise. I'm going to do it in the reverse order in which you spoke, so starting with you, Norman. Um, thank you so much. It was really, really interesting and indeed very complex. Um, so many things were mentioned, like Friedman... Uh, what capitalism, if it's like the, the sole business of, like of any business, is to make profit. Uh, the truth, the relationship we have from people towards business and the truth, very complex indeed. And the notion of LGBTQ plus people and how um, corporations are a vector of like, this social equality. But my question is, and again, I'm reiterating the point of sustainability, is it not outdated already? When we have like significant challenge coming up, such as also the future of work, what is it to be to be working in like 10, 20 years time. And again, what's our new relationship? Like what's the really significant role of business in um, the sustainability, sustainability transition? Thank you very much. Right, lot on the table there. <laughs> You've got a minute to respond to it, Norman. All right. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, I, I suppose the, the last point I would want you to think about is that I don't think this is a partial thing. I don't think this is a, a phase we're going through. Um, I think this is the future. This is this is what's going to happen to capitalism because there, there it doesn't appear to be any political or ideological um, alternative at this point in time. And my, 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 the real point I want you to think about is this, that what's driving all of this is this loss of authority uh, of the people that run the society. Is there loss of 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 purpose of their their you know, since the end of the cold war uh, where they've suddenly realized that there's a real vacuum at the heart of their society and they as a consequence they have moved they're grasping at all these things that might help to legitimize and maintain this the situation so the point i i want to end on is this that woke the wokeocracy or wokeness is bourgeois ideology it's not counterposed to it. This is the ideology of our society today. Because what it's doing is this. It is, it's so dangerous because it's essentially it's institutionalizing um, a debate, a focus in society where the real difficult questions that we face as a society... Um, the economic conditions of our society are being have been depoliticized, and we've now politicized the cultural and the and, 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 and the corporate sphere, and that's where the site is, where the struggle takes place. But what really is underneath this is a complete inability and unwillingness to to look at the very fundamentals of our society, about what kind of society we need in the future. And that, I think, is what it, it's, it's a diversion, but it's one that we have to engage with. Thank you, Norman. That's it. 
the example of um, Chick-a-Fil, I think it was, in the US doing really well and unwoke companies seemingly having um, unbroke <coughs> profit margins um, is a really good one. And I think from what I can see in the UK, Chick-a-Fil came in and then left because of the uproar around it and the unimaginative comms people who said, we can't allow that because it's going to be damaging to the profit margin. And it made me think about the point on technology because I think that's the biggest change. So rather than a, lo a loss of authority, we're seeing the loss of gatekeepers. And the loss of those gatekeepers who were of a certain demographic has meant that we're now open to more ideas and more thinking and we're getting access to things that possibly were spoken about before but you didn't read about and you didn't hear about. And I think the example I mentioned earlier about the racism in the NHS is a prime one, that now all of a sudden corporations are having to look up and think, what do I do and where do I stand on this and where does our staff stand on it? And I think, for me, rather than looking at this as the, the straw man that's been batting around to say this is a bad thing, I think there's a real opportunity for organisations to play a role in positive societal change, um, specifically in our country. And so I think that that's what we should be reflecting on as, as we mull this over further. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm here to defend the gatekeepers. I think that the, the death of the gatekeeper has kind of brought in the new dominance of, of um, corporate culture. And again, returning to the internet, it's this classic um, con that, you know, now pe ordinary people would have a say, and yet it hasn't quite well, transpired that we have real power. Um, so, yeah, just picking up on the co-option, the cultural co-option point, I think, yeah, I think it is a historical shift, this that the political and corporate co-option of progressive ideals has gone hand-in-hand hand with the corporate co-option of grassrootsy, um, grassroots culture. Um, yeah, it's interesting, this kind of... The, 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 kind of, the corporations um, cashing in on the, on, the, on the return of the dark side, you know, it's a sort of an, it's an epiphenomenal response to the dampening down of all that, um, you know, reality of human nature. Um, but I guess, you know, my, I think the most important point to, to end on really is this question of um, reputational damage, um, you know, that, that in the absence of government regulation of corporations to um, make them pay, pay proper taxes and so on, um, we're seeing this idea of reputational damage um, being a, a proxy, really, for um, proper curtailment of, of corporate power through government regulation and journalistic scrutiny. So as traditional journal and funded journalism declines, we have less scrutiny of real, the real impacts that corporations have on society and the environment. Um, and so I would say that instead of this kind of a proxy for political debate um, that we have in, in you know, playing out on social media through um, debates about um, woke um, corporate campaigns being successful or you know, have, but, but being public backlash towards those campaigns, that's really a proxy for a political debate and a, and a proper public opposition to corporate profit-seeking and tax avoidance. Thank you. Dan? There's a lot in there. I can't address everything. I must thank the customer loyalty. Uh, that's, uh, that's great to hear. And the question that was specifically addressed to me is sort of um, on the role of regulation uh, and laws. And look, of course, you need regulation and laws um, to stop corporates um, doing terrible things um, in the same way that, you know, I don't believe that all people are criminals, but we still need laws. Um, what I would say is, you know, is it possible for purpose and profit you know, positive purpose and profit to go together or not. And I'd argue over the sweep of history, the companies that have tended to succeed over time 
are the ones that harness the two together. And where they come into tension, those companies tend to fail over time. Um, and so the example I would give for, for my own industry, you know, we're just reopening two distilleries in Scotland, lost distilleries as they're called in Brewer and Port Ellen, very remote communities. Welcome to those communities that we're reopening. Um, you know, the whiskey that we're going to produce there um, won't be enjoyed by consumers for about 25 to 30 years. Um, so somewhere in a university, um, there will be some young man or woman, um, possibly arguing for the use of jazz hands rather than clapping, who will be the CEO of Diageo who benefits from that decision. Um, and, you know, we won't benefit from our long gone, retired, sacked or whatever by that point. Um, and the point there is that if we don't take these very long-term decisions for the long-term health of the company, the company won't prosper and our shareholders and owners and wider stakeholders won't prosper either. And so why are we thinking about how we decarbonize the company? How quickly can we do that? We don't believe it's a choice. We're going to have to decarbonize. How do we become a circular economy company in terms of our packaging and raw materials and water use? Because if we don't do that, we won't have a company in 10, 20, 30 years' time. Thank you. Toby. I think we've witnessed an interesting change um, fairly recently. So until fairly recently, um, it used to be the case that within the public sector, the media, the higher education sector, there was a clear liberal bias. But the counterweight to that in people's lives, in the life of the nation, was that um, in the private sector, uh, there was this small-c conservatism, and that acted as a bulwark to the um, liberalism, the liberal bias of the public sector and the media and the universities. Uh, and what we've seen in the past, really quite recently, of course it dates back uh, to perhaps to the, to the Quaker chocolate makers, uh, and it's not, it's not a, the, the embrace of wokeness by the corporate sector isn't perhaps a completely new phenomenon, but it's only really gathered momentum got obtained a kind of unstoppable velocity in the past 10 to 15 years. And what this means is that we now have this bias, this tilt towards the left across the entire terrain. There isn't anywhere for conservatives to kind of go for protection. And I think, Norman, you're wrong about, I think what, what you're right in that the reason the corporate world has embraced this ideology um, is because there is no competing alternative ideology. It's the only game in town. It's a kind of monopolistic, hegemonic ideology. Um, but I don't think of it, I think where you're wrong is that I don't think of it as a bourgeois ideology, as uh, bourgeois capitalism kind of successfully reinventing itself. I see it as a fundamentally anti-capitalist, anti-bourgeois ideology with its roots in this kind of neo-Marxist, French post-structuralist school of thought. And I think you see that anti, those anti-capitalist roots emerging. I mean, one of, the, one of the things we've seen is the social justice movement metastasizing to embrace this kind of radical, millenarian, death cult environmentalism, <laughs> which, uh, which, 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 we've, which we've heard discussed. And that has an explicitly anti-capitalist agenda. We need to decarbonize by 2025. Um, you know, good luck, Diageo, surviving decarbonization by 2025. <laughs> 20 years, uh, not five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but so, so I, 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 think, I think that... Uh, uh, it's been, I think that the corporate sector is going to rue the day that it embraced performative wokeness. Thank you, Toby. I'd like to just uh, say at this point a big thank you to Jacob Reynolds, who produced this session, and, and uh, he may or may not be in the audience, but, uh, and also a big thank you to all the speakers for taking the time and having a fantastic discussion. <laughs>
find out more about the festival by heading to our website at battleofideas.org.uk. To stay in touch with our work at the Academy of Ideas, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and sign up to our newsletter by following the link below this recording.